Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in New Haven, this is Seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. You're about to hear a real career highlight for me. I recently had the chance to talk with Chef Jacques Pepin in his home in Madison. We sat at a beautiful old wooden table in his kitchen. Jacques Pepin's kitchen. Now, I'm not normally nervous talking to people, but it wasn't lost on me that Jacques is a master, truly a legend in the culinary world. So we just pulled up at Jacques' house, and it's always weird when you go to someone's house for the first time ever, but coming to like a legend's house and you're sitting here, my heart is pounding right now, and I wish I could explain why. (laughs) Me too. You know, it's not every day that you are, you know, in the presence of one of America's like most beloved chefs. The, yes, I mean, the this most is, beloved. This is the chef's chef. That's yes. who this is. And not only the chef's chef, but like the home cook's chef too, because Jacques has taught millions of people how to cook on PBS. Everyone who, if you were into food, you know who Jacques is and you've watched him, seen him, learned something from him, whether it be online or shows on PBS back in the day or... It's remarkable. I I drive home from New York City listening to him talk about food. Like, it's remarkable how impactful this one human being is to so many people. And we're sitting outside of his house right now. I know. (laughs) And they're probably looking at us going, they have a microphone in their car. Do they know they're supposed to come inside? (laughs) It's wild. It's wild. My heart's, I can feel my heart in my chest right now. Let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, boy. That was me and Seasons producer Robin. Later in the show, you'll meet the man behind We Charcuterie. It's the French We, O-U-I. They make small batch dry cured salami. It's a favorite of mine and the only meat I wanted on the charcuterie board that I gifted to Jacques. But first, Jacques' home is filled with the artifacts of a life well lived. Photos of friends and family are everywhere, as are books, art, and copper and steel pans. They hang on the wall near the kitchen island where Jacques has demonstrated in hundreds of videos over the years, how to make omelets and galettes and roast chicken, all the classics. Having this time with Jacques was a real dream come true. We talked about everything from his childhood in France to his philanthropic legacy, the Jacques Pepin Foundation. All right, let's do it. For our listeners checking the show out right now, we are privileged and honored to be sitting in the home of one of the legends in the entire culinary world. Chef Jacques Pepin, chef, thanks for having us here in your kitchen. Well, you're quite welcome, you know. Here it is. I've been here in 1976. We moved in that house. We used to be a brick factory in the 20s or 30s. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love the wall here the, with the wood paneling, but all the pans hanging from it. Yes, I use, I have to say I use less copper than I used to because it's too heavy. I can't lift it up. But otherwise, yes, I always like to look at pan, and it's easier than to go in a closet somewhere to try to find your pan. You have them, you know, at your disposal. They're right there on the wall. So Easy to can... grab. They're beautiful, too, I think. It does look like artwork. You have the copper pans and the cast irons and the silver and the steel. It looks, it's, it's actually really beautiful. Thank I wish you. my wife would let me do that. Oh, she won't? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even have things on the countertop, Chef. Oh, it's right. a whole situation. But, yes, thank you so much for having us here. We really appreciate it. 
you and I actually met about a year ago. I did a dinner at the Madison Beach Hotel. Oh, yeah, right. And yes. uh, I'll tell you, it's a real honor for me to be here. When I, I did that particular dinner, I told the team, I said, I had to at least talk to you before the dinner. They said, okay, fine. So they brought me upstairs to come say hello to you. And it's the only time in my life I ever had emotional meeting somebody. Oh. I had to turn around and walk away and like smack myself in the face. Come on, get it together. You got to feed all these people right now. So. You sure you're not confusing me with someone? <laughs> 100% not. But uh, in coming to the house to spend some time with you today, we obviously I can't come empty-handed. So I've brought a little yes, charcuterie, so much. big charcuterie, a little I mean, cheese plate uh, with some great plate. local salami from a company called We Charcuterie. Yeah, the little salami that are in there, a couple different flavors of it as well. Yeah, it's delicious. And so we can snack on that as we're hanging out. A little local cheese from uh, Arethusa. This brie is delicious. You even have the little... uh, Little red currants on there? Yeah, red currants. It's pretty, right? Yeah, beautiful. (laughs) I'm a big fan of when you put stuff on there, it has to make sense. Like, I don't want to put that just sprig of rosemary in the middle for no reason, you know? (laughs) Right. So at least you can eat those. It's it's yummy. And you brought me some wine, too. I did. And, uh, you know, I thought long and hard about what wine to bring you. And this one struck a chord with me because I know how you feel about wines and it doesn't have to be crazy expensive. And my brother-in-law years and years ago used to drink a very expensive wine back then it's not expensive anymore it was called conundrum oh, and i used yeah, to, I know you remember this one it was like oh, a yes. blend of nine grapes i used to love this wine but i couldn't afford it when i was in culinary school back then <laughs> so this company called number nine it's called evolution it's by a company called Sokol blaster they made a clone of the conundrum and oh. sold it for 14 dollars. it tastes wonderful so yeah, i'd like to pour you a little bit if that's, that's okay that's my type yes <laughs> Thank you very much. It's not too early for a sip of wine, is it? Well, it's never too early. <laughs> <laughs> and right. that jam your wife made, you said? Yes, sir. Good. It's a pepper jam that we've put here with us as well. It goes great with a little bread. And I don't toast the bread on purpose. I like it soft. It's made from the peppers in our garden. And she, Good. every year, takes the leftover peppers that I don't pickle and cook with. And she makes a jam, which is fantastic. So, Good. Uh, cheers, Jeff. So Thank you for having your us. Wife. Cheers and to my wife. Thank jam. you. In your most recent book, which focused on your you know, lifelong love of chickens yes. and the paintings, you describe you and your brothers as free-range boys. What did you mean by that? And can you describe what your childhood in France was like? Well, you know, it was the first part of my life in France was during the war. Although, of course, I didn't realize it because that's what the way life was. My mother, of course, used absolutely everything. She would go 30, 40 kilometer with a bicycle to go to farm to try to get a couple of eggs here, there, and so forth. That's probably why I'm so miserly in the kitchen. You know, I've learned to use absolutely everything. My father would never have thrown a piece of bread away. First he would have kissed it, and when he threw it away, gave it to the, to the chicken anyway. So, uh, yeah, so life was uh, certainly different at that time uh, in France, but... Uh, We had a very happy childhood. I mean, I had two brothers, and uh, my father had left to go to the resistance. So my mother was uh, taking care of three kids, and she was a waitress in the restaurant. So we had my grandmother, fortunately, there who helped. We had a communal garden, so we used to go to the communal garden very often. That's one of the big part of what we ate, you know, vegetables, salad, and so forth. In fact, we were in a little place in Bourg-en-Bresse, France, not too far from the railroad station. And because of that, we would get bombed. We get bombed three times during the war. Wow. Three times, the outside of the house was destroyed. Three times, nobody was there. 
Three times my father came back from the, from the resistance with a couple of kind of sardines in his pockets. Remember at that time we had no telephone or anything, so we had no idea that we were born. And he would come to the house and he would try then find us at some cousin or whatever. Then a second time, then a third time. So we were really lucky. Unbelievable. I wonder if we can set up for our listeners how it was that you knew so early on that you wanted to be a chef. I mean, even though I know you understood it was going to be a really hard life, it's a lot of discipline, especially in the beginning. Well, life was so much simpler at that time. I'm 87 now, so 80 years ago I was in the kitchen already uh, with my mother with a little restaurant. My father was a cabinet maker by trade. We didn't have telephone. We didn't have radio, we didn't have television, of course, anything like this, even magazine too. So life was relatively simple. I'm a cabinet maker or I'm a cook, <laughs> that's it. And I love the, the, the kitchen uh, in my family in France. I can count 12 restaurants through the year, 12 of them run by women. My two aunts, my sister-in-law, my cousin, yeah, and my mother, of course, uh, they all had restaurants. So I chose the kitchen, yes, and I left home when I was. I mean, in France, you had to go to school until age 14 to finish uh, primary school. I think I was in that class when I was 12, so I was ahead. So at 13, I took all the final exam and left and uh, went into apprenticeship. Your book, The Apprentice, the picture of you on there, you, or you're, you're 13, 14 on that picture? It's, yeah, about 14, yes. Yeah. That's an amazing picture. It's funny because we, you know, the culinary industry now and chefs now, like it's are almost revered. You know, it's a proper profession where, yes. you know, even when I was younger starting, it was the bottom of the barrel. You know, the cook wasn't someone who should be spoke of or heard of yes. or, you know. The cook was really at the bottom of the social scale and any good mother with a, a son or daughter to marry a lawyer or a cook, certainly not a cook. <laughs> now we are genius. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I've been telling everybody forever I was. They yeah. finally listened to me. Oh, boy. <laughs> a little later, I want to talk about the importance of culinary education and the work that the Jacques Pen Foundation does. But before we get to that, I think a lot of chefs and even folks who aren't professional cooks might like to hear a story or two about your own personal culinary education. Can you describe what a typical day was like as a young apprentice in a professional kitchen? First, the Hotel de l'Europe, where I did my apprenticeship, was a beautiful old hotel. And there, there was a big, big uh, double-door window, and the kitchen was behind. So the kitchen was exposed already there. So everything was white, shining, uh, beautiful. I had never seen that type, and, and certainly mixer or equipment that I didn't know anything about. So it was very exciting to do that, but uh, at that time, and in the next 30 or 40 years of my working, uh, the idea was to conform in the kitchen. So you come there, it's not like you were creating something, no. The chef tell you do that. You would never have said why, because he would have said, because I just told you, That's it's it. about <laughs> the end of the explanation. And to a certain extent, uh, when you are that young, then it's, uh, it's a good way to learn. And then for a year, certainly I clean up the, the floor and the stove, which was a big, big job. You know, in the morning, light up the stove with wood, coal, and so forth, and keep it hot. Wow. You know, I mean, this was a whole, uh, a whole apprenticeship because uh, when 100 people sit for lunch, and if you don't get your stove exactly right at 12 o'clock, it has to be totally red, the inside of the oven red, and then you just add a little bit to keep it until 2, and then after it goes down. So, you know, learning how to do that, and of course, killing and uh, uh, plucking and eviscerating chicken because... 
the part of France I came from was quite known for the chicken. And then, uh, you know, scaling fish and cutting fish and chopping parsley. So you do all of that for at least a year. And at that point, the, the chef was calling me, I think, you or something like that in yeah. France. And then when they called me by my name, Jacques, said, tomorrow you start at the stove. Wow. I've never <laughs> been close to the stove except to fill it up with coal or stuff. I didn't know that I would know anything, but you learn through osmosis. And the idea was to repeat, 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 repeat those techniques so that they become part of your DNA. Probably one of the reasons now I can look at, uh, I can look at a camera and so forth and uh, talk about uh, a dish, a texture of it or taste of it, and my hands are just moving, doing that. That was the idea of uh, absorbing the technique so much that you transcend the level at which you have to think about it. You know, you just work. And I think that for me, still, uh, this is a good apprenticeship for a professional chef, certainly. Is it okay if we fast forward to your life in America a little bit? When you first arrived here in 1959, you landed in what was then the best French restaurant in New York City. But it wasn't up to your standards. Well, Um, it was in some way, in some other way, no. You know, I came to America in 1959. I didn't come to stay. I came to stay a year, maybe two. I mean, I had worked for the president in France. Mm. You know, uh, I worked at the best restaurant in Paris. My parents had a restaurant, had a good job. Most immigrants come for economic reasons, usually to get a better life or political reasons or social reasons or religious reasons. I didn't have any of this. I wanted to come to America. You know, America was still the, the golden fleece, you know. So I said, I want to go there for a year, maybe two years and come back. It's over 60 years ago, I mean, I'm here. <laughs> uh, so the, the things were quite different than and, uh, when I started working at the Pavillons, and it, it was great. I mean, I realized that uh, we had uh, beautiful meat here, lobster and stuff, which were really very expensive in France, uh, less here, but much less in terms of vegetable too. Uh, when I came to America, there was not really great wine. There was no bread. There was no cheese. I mean, American, you know. These are all the wonderful things they were missing out on. Are you kidding? And <laughs> now you have extraordinary wine, bread, cheese. I remember the first time I went to a supermarket. I live on 50th between 1st and 2nd Avenue in New York. I thought it was a great idea not to have to go to the fish guy, the vegetable guy, the meat guy, to everything under the same roof. However, there, there was a lot of package, 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 too. One salad, iceberg, no leak. <laughs> no shallot, no oriental vegetable. I said, where are the mushrooms? I'll find that canned mushroom. Oh, That's no. it. So, you know, this was the supermarket at the time. Totally, totally different than what it is now. I mean, that was the time, too, the 50s and 60s. It was the yeah. frozen food, everything's in a can. I think you can even buy chicken in a can. <laughs> yes. Now it's, it's another world. Yeah. It's interesting because I am sometimes considered maybe as being the quintessential French chef, and then you take my book, you open it, and page 32, you have a black bean soup with banana and cilantro on top, from my wife born in New York City, but with a Puerto Rican mother and a Cuban father. Then you have a southern fried chicken, then a lobster roll from Connecticut, then I do a shirazi sushi. So I'm probably the quintessential American chef now, after 60 years. I have done 32 cookbooks, and... uh, I don't really cook French, so I cook the way I cook, and uh, the technique are the technique, of course, that you learn, but uh, 
I mean, since the beginning of the pandemic there, we do that Facebook show that my daughter told me, can you do those little shows for Facebook, five, six minutes? Mm. And uh, we've done 300 of those. I think I've watched 300 of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I've seen them all. I don't know. I feel like I constantly watch them and rewatch them as well. Uh, I think one of the things I've heard you say before, which is great for home cooks, we have a lot of home cooks who listen to this program, and I thought it was brilliant when I heard you say it. Use the grocery store like your prep cook. Yes. When you are in a, as a professional chef, you have the prep cook who come in the morning and he bought out the fish and they divide the chicken, he slice the mushroom, he chop the shallot, he wash the spinach, and uh, everything is ready for you, nothing is cooked. And you get to the stove, someone order a piece of fish, you grab a filet, a bit of shallot on top, some mushroom, a dash of white wine, bring it to a boil, boil it two minutes, reduce it to a bit of butter to finish, and you do that dish in five, six minutes because you have all of that prep. You know, so I tell people you go to the supermarket. I bought skinless, boneless breasts of chicken, pre-washed spinach, pre-sliced mushroom. I have a non-stick pan. I think it's a great way to look at it. I mean, you can even buy yeah. onions chopped now. I mean, yeah. if you want to, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, Chef, has, has Food Network ever called you and said thank you to you and Julia Child, like you know, for for showing millions of Americans that they can learn how to cook by watching TV? Because I really think they should. They should call you and say, oh. Chef, thank you. Every day, it should be a commercial that runs. Thank you, Chef Jacques Papin. We appreciate everything you've done. No, I, I went through <laughs> two or three times. They asked me to do a series with them, but they didn't want me to be on PBS. I said, well, no. I've been on PBS 40 years. Yeah. That's what I didn't go. I mean, I went on Sarah Moulton's show, Embry Lagasse, mm-hmm. uh, Jacques Torres. Well, then I went probably did a dozen shows on the Food Channel Network, but I never had my own... You made uh, many appearances on yeah. there, but never your own. I, I mean, I'm not complaining because I am uh, known probably f- because of PBS more than yeah. anything else, but it's a different way than commercial television. But on the other hand, we never have to call to, to, uh, to sponsor or do or endorse any mm-hmm. product. In fact, we couldn't. At the beginning show on PBS, we had Cuisinart too, and we had uh, a sticker on each of the, the name of uh, the appliances. Cover it up so you yeah, couldn't see I the mean, name we couldn't it. even know it. And then finally they took it out. What do you think of those shows and you see it now? Because there's so many of them on there now. You see these competition shows that everyone's so oh, willing yeah. to watch, the chops yeah. and the things like that. Do you ever see any of those or watch them or see some of these chefs? To tell you the truth, I don't really look much yeah. at cooking shows on television, but yeah, there is a great deal of... Uh, I have told there were 300 television shows on on cooking on television. I don't know whether it's true, but... That's crazy. I mean, I'd have been judged on things like uh, Top Chef mm-hmm. and all that several times, and it's fine. But yeah, there is a lot of show where it's confrontation and fighting and uh, uh, that type of thing. And this is not really the way you teach people how to cook. And I know when I work on television, even with Julia, you know, I did... Uh, well, I did all those series, and Julia said, oh, you have to be, this is entertainment, so don't be too serious and all that, which we was right. Yet, at the end of each of the show, we always say, what did we taught today? I mean, we taught how to do whatever. So it was already the teaching element was there. Yeah. I've heard you say about Julia, we cooked and we argued. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> was there a particularly like memorable argument or disagreement that you and Julia had that you either won or that you lost that you could share with us? Well, I met Julia in 1960, so I knew her forever. At that time, she had never done a book, she'd never done television, she was never the food editor of a magazine or whatever, so she was not known at all. So we stayed friends for half a century. At the beginning of the show, she said, 
okay, write a hundred things that you want to do. And I'll write a hundred. So she did. And I think I had three, maybe four of mine made it. You know, so the rest was her. But other professional chef, I don't really care. You put food on the table, cook it one way or the other, right. and do something with it. So uh, with Julia, we had a lot of wine first. Uh, we had uh, no time limit. And maybe more importantly, we had no recipe. Wow. Uh, she said, okay, the day before, say, let's do stew or this or that. You know, so that's what we did. So we had no recipe. The cameramen were crazy. They didn't know where we were going left, right? Because really couldn't follow. Oh, and oh we my had gosh, just that's crazy. Two, two, two young women, one student of mine at the French Culinary Institute, the other one student of mine at BU, were in the back kitchen, you know, helping. So it was a totally different way of doing it. You know, so no recipe, no time limit, a lot of wine. We had a good time. I was fortunate enough, Chef, to, uh, when I was in culinary school, long, long time ago, Julia had come to our school a few months before she passed, and I got selected to be one of the students that walked her to her car when it was all done. And uh, I'll never forget that moment, just, just as I walked arm in arm with her, she's holding my hands, and she's just talking about oh, yeah. she was she know, must have liked you she liked big guys she was uh, she was very tall oh yeah and i was much she will flirt with you yeah, so. uh, she she did she told held my hands i was like you have good chef hands <laughs> yeah. i was like well, thank you I she used that. to have that old volkswagen car and instead of the antenna she had a um a coat hanger a coat hanger that she had put there <laughs> for the antenna for the antenna for the car yeah, yeah. unbelievable wow <laughs> I didn't see a coat hanger when I walked Julia to her car that day long ago, but she was known to attach a wooden spoon to her car's antenna so she could easily find it in parking lots. Whatever works, right? I'm Chef Plum, and this is Seasoned. More with Jacques Pen after a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. I'm Chef Plum. This is Seasoned. I could have listened to Jacques tell stories about Julia for hours, but I wanted to spend some time talking about his most recent book, Art of the Chicken. The book includes dozens of paintings inspired by illustrations Jacques drew along the margins of his personal menus. Those menus were created over 50 years of meals with family and friends. Imagine half a century of celebratory meals all documented in this way. You're a painter, and your book, The Art of the Chicken, showcases your portraits of 
beautiful, colorful chickens, and they seem to have like personalities, like they're surprised or they're kind of smiling, or you know, sometimes they're regal or made from shapes of fruits and vegetables. Talk to us about this muse of chickens and why chickens. Well, as I said, I was born in an area of France where very, very well known for the chicken, the chicken of Bresse, B-R-E-S-S-E, which are beautiful white plumage, red uh, combs, you know, and blue feet, so bleu, blanc, rouge, the color of the flag in France. You see, on, on that shelf over there, I have 12 books of a menu. You know, I, wa- I was oh. married uh, 54 years. For 54 years, when people came to the house, I wrote the menu, and people signed on the other, on the other page. Sometimes we put the uh, label of the wine that we had in there and yeah. stuff like that, too. And I started illustrating those menus and realized I was illustrating a lot of them with chicken. Funny thing, sometimes we have the little kid, uh, sometimes the dog, I take the paw of the dog in the wine to put it there, <laughs> or the little kid, their hand to put it there. Or sometimes the wine, we put a drop of... Uh, Whatever wine there is, and uh, we put... But, I on mean, purpose, is, you would put there, it on there. there is a, yeah, yeah, there is a lot of illustration. Yeah, you can flip the page and you'll see wow, many... Uh, Claudine came the other day, my daughter, Claudine. She's, you know, mid-50 now. Oh. And she said, what did I eat for my fourth birthday? I said, okay, let's look. We find our fourth birthday. And she even drew the chicken at the time. and do. So, you know, this is... Uh, my whole life there, I have 50 years with incredible. my mother, my two brothers, wife, too, in those menu, And many, many friends who are gone now. So This is incredible. You know, so some of them start 1970, 75 or whatever, 70. So. so no other chef is more closely associated with chicken or with eggs. Did you ever think that one of the things you'd be famous for would be teaching Americans over and over and over the yeah. proper way to scramble an egg or, uh, or chi- make an omelet? Yeah, chicken, I mean, eggs maybe more than chicken is important. You know, I love eggs. And when I did that book, The Art of the Chicken there, I did not want to do a cookbook. Mm-hmm. You know, I have 31 cookbook. So I had the publisher, I want to do a book of my chicken padding. They say, great, fantastic, great. So, so we start signing some drawing and planning to it. They say, okay, can we have a recipe with it? I said, no, I don't want to do recipe. <laughs> so I decided to do like I did in The Apprentice, to tell story. So I tell story about eggs. I tell story about chicken uh, from my mother to So some of the recipe are narrative in style. And I said, my mother used to do this, this, and you can probably follow it. I mean, eggs are like the foundation of French cooking. Oh, yeah, it's such it's- an important part of it. I think you've taught every American how to make eggs properly. Well, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) I ended my conversation with Jacques by highlighting the lasting legacy of the Jacques Pepin Foundation. The foundation provides grants and other resources to community-based culinary arts training programs nationwide. Forge City Works in Hartford is one of them. I asked Jacques what it means to help people change their lives through culinary education and be a part of this community of cooks. Well, this is what food is all about, you know. I mean, you cannot cook indifferently, you know. When you cook, you get involved. And, you know, as a young chef or a young person, to get into that business doesn't really make much money. It's really hard work. You work Saturday, Sunday, holiday and stuff. So unless you really love it, you know, you better not get into it. (laughs) But if you love it, it's... uh, you know, it's a nice way of spending your life. Uh, we teach through over a hundred different uh, community kitchen all over the country. I gave class in Hartford, in New York, and all over. And uh, people, uh, 
in the kitchen, team is very important, and uh, uh, our motto is that everyone needs equal in the eye of the stove. And it's true, you know, when, when it's 11 o'clock, you have 100 people sitting down at 12, uh, the color of your skin doesn't really matter. I mean, you gotta move. You know? Amen to that. <laughs> move. So it's been, it's been pretty good. We've given close to a million dollars now already to That's different incredible. organization. Yeah, I think kitchen is one of the ultimate team sports when you work in a professional kitchen. Not only that, but uh, not only the, the kitchen, but then the sitting down and eating together. The table is a great equalizer, you know. When you put people together to eat and share wine, even if you disagree, you disagree usually in a, in a fairly nice manner. Let's jump into Connecticut a little bit here for a moment, Chef, because I think it's... It's a place I've grown to love. I'm not originally from here, but I've been living here for a very long time now. And That's why we have the same accent, you see? That we do, don't we? Connecticut. <laughs> so after a career spanning 75 years, and you're still surrounded by a who's who of our great local chefs here in the state. For example, your last birthday dinner was cooked by a group of young chefs, uh, Rene Tupance, Emily Mangrone, Chrissy Tracy. Yeah. Um, you know, Renee just won Chef of the Year for this year's awards by the Connecticut Restaurant Association. Uh-huh. Uh, fantastic yeah. chef. You were given, of course, a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, are young chefs, you know, your friends and students, when you teach at events, part of what's keeping you so energized about the craft now? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, Michel Nichon here, great chef. So, yes, I mean, without any question, uh, it's nice to see people who love what they are doing, who get satisfied by it. I mean, this is the secret of life, you know. If you can make a living out of something you love to do, you never have to go to work, you know. So, uh, so yes, uh, working with a different community, young chef and all that, it's always exciting for me. And, you know, you always learn something, regardless of who you work with, you know. Uh, if you keep your eyes open, you learn. Sometimes you learn what not to do, but you learn something. <laughs> <laughs> you learn not to do that, right? Yes. Um, Chef, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been a joy to sit here and chat with you for a little bit and just hear you tell these stories I've heard. Oh, you're quite welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for that, Chef. Thank you. I'll drink to that. Cheers. Happy cooking. That was living legend Jacques Pepin. We'll have a link to the Jacques Pepin Foundation on our show page, as well as photos from our time with Jacques and a link to an excerpt from Jacques' book, Art of the Chicken. It's the two different ways of roasting a chicken. One is Jacques' method, and the other is Julia's, and I'm not taking sides. There's one more web extra I hope you'll find useful. You can watch a video of my simple tips for creating a beautiful charcuterie board like the one I shared with Jacques. Go to ctpublic.org seasoned, and it'll be on our dedicated food page all month, too. Watch it on ctpublic.org food. I'm Chef Plum. After a quick break, I'll introduce you to the maker of my favorite local salami, He'll give us a Salami 101, and I'll taste a Salami flight. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Chef Plum. When I was preparing for my interview with Jacques Pepin, I wanted to bring a few things that we could enjoy together that would feel personal. So I shared some favorites, a bottle of Evolution Lucky Number 9, a jam my wife makes from peppers in our garden, a local brie from Arethusa, 
and my favorite local salami made by Wee Charcuterie. Anybody who knows me knows that I can sniff out a great salami. Wee Charcuterie is owned by nurse-turned-farmer Matthew Browning. Matt's foray into farming began 10 years ago in Woodbridge when he started raising pigs, turkeys, and bees. I asked how he started making some of the best salami in the state. Yeah, so it was pigs. Um, I walked downstairs one day and my kid, who's now 14, but was four, good Lord, four at the time. We were moved out to the farm and he's watching something on TV. I said, how you doing, kid? He goes, good. Can we make bacon, Dad? I said, sure. Let's go make some bacon. He goes, no, from the bellies. I said, from the belt? What do you mean, from the bellies? Is hog bellies? He said, yeah. I said, what are you watching? He was watching Food Channel and someone was curing stuff. I uh-huh. said, of course we could. We're on a farm now. Yeah. So we went out, we started looking. We found the Wamugo School up in um, uh, Litchfield County. And they had a Future Farmers of America thing. And there was a Craigslist ad. They were trying to get rid of these hogs. And they kept getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, uh-huh. which isn't the way it works. So I called her up and Christmas break was coming and they didn't want to take care of the hogs over Christmas break. And these little piglets were not so little anymore. And uh, so we went down, we were going to get a pig or two and we came home with six. Of course. And so we come home with six and it's going into December and winter and a whole lot more challenge than I ever expected. Yeah. I never, we weren't really animal people and bit off more than we could chew. We had a pig roast in January because one of them was a little nippy and we uh, uh-huh. decided he should go. And uh, we sold a pig or two at that party because, you know, a bunch of Yankees out here in the sleet and drizzle. And back then we were part of the brewery. So we were, you know, having beer, drinking and a pig roast. So we sold one or two, but I had way too many hogs left and I didn't have a market. So I started looking at how do you cure? And we started making pancetta and you've seen my prosciuttos and we made Lonzo, everything, everything, lardo, all the guancali, everything. But the salami, a whole bunch, our kids went to school was a bunch of chef's kids and they'd come to our farm parties and they were like, dude, this salami. And I said, yeah, we make it. And they, oh, what do you eat? And we're not using nitrates. We're uh-huh. not using any of the gluten, soy, nut. And they try it and go, oh my God, this is the stuff. And so that's how we went from having a farm, being a nurse and suddenly having our first pig to being a salami company. And now we have salami. It's amazing. Is... And it's all my kid's fault, really. And he's 14 now, and <laughs> it still eats it. It's delicious stuff. For people don't, who don't know, can you give us like a just a general 101 when it comes to salami? And like, how's it different than sausage and bologna and just the differences? Sure. So it's an ancient food preservation method, drying of meat, right? So jerky is the one you'd fundamentally start to think. But then they started to make blends of it and to spice them out. There's a few things that make it safe, right? different from a fresh sausage. One is salt. It has to have some salt. It has to have some form of acidity, and that's normally provided by bacteria. As bacteria grow and eat whatever's in either the meat or the additives to the meat, they produce a bacteria, and then that creates an acidification. Then you need to play with the water, like beef jerky. You need to dehydrate. It takes some right. of the water out. There's a technical term called water activity. But you want to make it so if a bacteria did get to part of it, it can't get to all of it because there's no real water to transport it. Okay. So if you do those things, it becomes what the USDA can call food safe or shelf stable, which is what our product is. This stuff is you can walk around with it in your pocket and yeah. eat it for a week or two. 
Well, that's the thing that you're really proud of when it comes to this, how the natural way you do it, how you don't have extra stuff in there. Right. It's something that's kind of a source of pride for you, right? It, it's huge. And I didn't realize how important it was. So I came at it from a father and being a nurse. I'm, I have a master's in nursing. Mm-hmm. And so I was a nurse practitioner. And as I went through all my stuff, I realized it's really our diet and our our commercialization of what we quote unquote call food in this country that's killing all of us. Food is medicine. If you open it up and it's all stuff that looks like the plant, that here's a carrot, here's a radish, here's a whatever, you're in a pretty good shape. But mm-hmm. if you open it up and it's all something you can't pronounce and you have to open it out of a bag, you're probably not going to stay in good shape. There's a casing that I think people, we should talk a little bit about. So I don't think people understand that a casing on the outside of a sausage or outside of a salami like this. And we say salami, I mean, this is small. It's about the diameter of a quarter sure. is how I describe it. Yep. So it's not some big salami. Yep. I think the casing on the outside, some people understand like that's edible. You should eat that part. Absolutely. So now it depends on who's making it. So we're traditional. And so being traditional, we use an edible casing, which is the hog's intestine. Yeah. It gets scraped out, cleaned out, gets brined down. My and wife then is it like turning salty. the radio off right now. She's yep. like, oh God, why are you talking about that? <laughs> well, but, you know, and nobody wants to talk about the making right. part, but actually... By not talking about the making part, we get to hide some of those injustices in the food system. Mm -hmm. I have no fillers, but I could throw ground up cardboard, literally cellulose in a salami if I was not going to talk about the process. But who would do that in their kitchen table with their aunts and uncles, grandparents passing down a tradition? Of course. You'd never consider it, right? So we look at the parts of the process the casing is one of the most important. This thing takes so much care to get it to where it's just a clean, edible, non-collagen sheath. Every single sausage we make is handmade. So to make them with the casing is really difficult to do, but a natural casing does not, a natural hog intestine casing does not need to be removed. Now, if you're bigger salamis with like the beef bung or the bladder, and there's other ways to make dry cured charcuteries, those they soak and they cut off and take them off. But ours, you just slice it thin and eat it and enjoy it. I have a general rule of thumb. If the word bung is used, I'm taking it off. That's a really good idea. (laughs) We're not going to use that. Absolutely. Or you have a different tolerance for flavors. That's right. Let's talk about what we have in front of us here because you make three different types. Let's start right here with our one with the red packaging. Talk about this guy and the flavor and what we call it and... Our labels are very bright. One's red, one's white, one's blue. The red we call a more because, frankly, we fell in love with it. It's a mistake. As you're chewing <laughs> on it, you can pick up the earthy, great, outdoor-raised heritage pork. You get a little bit when you inhale that sea salt. And then about 15 seconds later, you get this little pop of picante, right? The spice mm-hmm. kicks in. Heat. And you fall in love with it, which is why I named it Amour. It was actually an accident because our original recipe was the Vita, our medium or the white label. And I went in one day and it was redder. Sure as heck, we were missing an extra pepper spice packet. Oh, and no. it's doubled the pepper of our medium. But it's beautiful because the cayenne takes a t- little while to come on. So it gives you that late burn. And it hangs out for about 90 seconds and then lets you go. It's a beautiful, beautiful So it's dance. cayenne pepper in this. Uh-huh. The sausage itself, the salami itself, it's a little bit deeper red color. You can see those little bits of fat in there. We use a very large dye, coarse grind, so that we keep our fat intact. Because we A, we use good high quality fat. And B, those globules, as they melt on your tongue, start to give you that that unctuous flavor, right? That whole coating of your mouth, it starts to dissolve. So the chew is nice to it, has a little bit of a chew to it. That heat comes in, it's not too much heat. The salt, like you said, kind of comes when you inhale. Right. 
which is interesting. That's a delicious one. It's one of my favorite ones, actually. This one's in the lead to go on the cheese board for sure. Oh, they're great. It's a pop of flavor. If you like it a little bit spicy, it's a wonderful flavor. And it pairs great with all kinds of cheeses. Sharp cheddars for basic, the old school provolone, yeah. right? Cato Corner in Connecticut makes some cheeses. And we great eat with cheese ours, Corner. And we eat it with our salami all the time. My, my 11-year-old will pick, you know, he has uh -huh. favorites. It's like, no, we're getting Bloomsburg aged or well, Bloomsburg You know, Arethusa makes this beautiful breed. It yeah. almost has like a mushroom thing going on. I think it would be delicious with that. That earthiness. Yeah, I love it with that. Really well. Let's talk about the medium here because this is another great sausage. I love this one as well. This is the white package. Again, it's, so it's not quite as red as the other one. Um, the fat's content's the same. There's little chunks of fat on the inside of it, like you said, because it comes from the larger dye when you're cutting it up. Right. And you're not running it through four or five times through the no. grinder. That's our medium. That's what we call Vita. It's kind of life, right? It is our uh, Goldilocks of salami. It's not too hot, not too sweet. That is delicious as well. Like I said, this one comes through. It has a hint of a spice, not much, but it's really simple, I think. Simple meaning easy to pair with something. We uh, showcased that down in New York at Queens when we were the only Connecticut salami company that's ever been invited to the New, New York Charcuterie Masters competition. And that one is what we entered the competition, but it's funny, all the old school salami makers, we were sitting around eating the hot at our yeah. table. Yeah. Which is just such a lost art. I love that this is happening here in our state. Like this is something that's just a really cool thing. You know, when you think about making a great charcuterie plate for guests coming to your house or, or going to someone's house, buying something local like this where you yep. know where it came from, you know what's in it, and it's just not going to be a fresher product. Like, this is this is great. These traditional arts are important. It's part of why we moved out of our urban farm and went to the suburban farm was to give our kids, frankly, more opportunities mm. to see what a farm brings. But they've learned how to make soap. I mean, using the lard from the hogs. Wow. They've learned how to keep bees and extract the honey. They've learned my 11-year-old can bake bread as well as my grandmother did, who did six loaves a day for a family of whatever, seven or eight kids. Amazing. Those traditional arts are important, and I, I can't think of one that might be more important than meat preservation. Because that's how you would feed your families when you couldn't get other meat. You would it, have this preserved. That's just history. It's, it's just, winter. It's February, yeah. and you're eating fall hogs. Amazing. Let's talk about the dolce because you call this one the sweet one, right? Oh, uh, we call it sweet, but in this case, sweet is just an absence of heat. People go, oh my goodness, I'm keto. Well, okay, we're all trying to watch our carbs, right? <laughs> so you look at the recipe on our label, and I mean, it's simple. We got pork, salt, we have pepper, black pepper, crushed pepper, cayenne pepper, turbinado sugar, lactic acid, and that's it with the pork casing. So when you look at that, you go, what all we've done is pull an absence of heat. Why is there any sugar? Well, that feeds that bacteria that we talked about. And to make sure the lactic acid bacteria, which you can almost think yogurt, right? Lactic right. acid bacteria. It, they need to grow fast enough, eat all the sugar. When there's no more sugar, there's nothing to feed them. They die. And when they die, they make the acid. The wee charcuterie dolce or sweet salami kind of reminds me of the salami that, not sweet, but like you might make a sandwich out of. It, it is. It's a kid favorite, and folks who aren't are a little more averse to a little bit of the spicier pieces. I think the trouble I'm having is which one of these I want to take, so I think I'm going to take all three. I think that's genius that's because it allows you to try. So when people do charcuterie <laughs> boards, I tell them do the sweet and the hot or the dulce and right. the more, the blue and the red, so you have a spectrum. If you can only do one, it's the medium. Obviously, you make a salami, so you you know make grazing boards, or you'll put together a charcuterie board for guests coming to the house, or or going to someone's house, like we're talking about here. You got any tips for making a board look great, or making it look beautiful, or Absol some must-haves for the board that maybe I'm not thinking of? 
Absolutely. You're starting with fat, right? So you have this beautiful, unctuous, creamy, it fills your whole mouth fat. But you need to be able to cut that and offset that, right? So starches are often used, something like a bread, crackers, those type of things go really good with it to kind of give you a serving platform. I've really gotten into I've, that thin wafer cracker. Those crackers, they're baked one. A little wavy on the sides. Oh, I love them. And, uh, and then you probably need an acid, right? So it all comes, it's, what was that show? Fire, acid, salt yeah, uh, yeah, on, yeah. on Netflix, I think it is. Those are the things of food, right? It's all so about you need balance. An, you need an acid, something to balance it. So you see the pickles come out, which are actually another form of charcuterie, yeah. curing with salt. So you see anything, depending on who and what and where you are, but pickles themselves, pickled onions you see all the time, olives, right? They're another form of brining and preserving another charcuterie. Um, so those go really well with it. A little crunch, right? You want something to get off of that, yeah. that kind of mushy. It's not mushy, but that kind of yeah, texture. Little, little, little texture. Really, I like to use cashews or something so, like almonds. So, yeah, exactly. So another fat with crunch like nuts. And um, so dried fruits are another one. You know, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of sweetness. So you're really just kind of creating um, a symphony on your tongue. And you can play with the notes. And huh. it's just another note you can add to your repertoire. Symphony on your tongue. I'm not in any bands anymore, but if I was, that that's would be the a bad name of it. We tell people all the time when they come to the farmers markets for our stuff, or if we're out of some of our big stores, you know, like Lyman's and Adams and all those places yeah, yeah. doing sampling, you watch them, they take a bite. And the people who have grown up doing charcuterie as a traditional thing, they inhale and their eyes kind of roll back a little bit and their head kind of goes back a little. You know, it's kind of like a one-bite time machine. You are standing at that table again, and they probably got a cigarette in the corner with the ashes <laughs> dropping, and stuff's hanging, and everyone's bickering and talking and, you know, shooting the jive. But they're stuffing salamis, and they're doing it for the whole family, and it's so many traditions. Yeah. We're the best of many charcuterie traditions integrated into this beautiful, frankly, Americanized blend, right? We're a melting pot. And we that. use the best of the techniques, the best of the ingredients, and the best of the knowledge and wisdom from our elders. I didn't make salami out of the blue. I sought out knowledge from people who have been making it. Mm -hmm. Francesco from Columbus Salami in San Francisco has helped guide me through this. You know, Oliveira from Ali Salami. We've had interactions and questions and conversations. And that's what this is. It's a passing of knowledge for a skill and an art. And it happened to turn into a really cool product that's made in Connecticut by hand. People just dig. But it's bigger than that. It's passing on traditions, knowledge, and wisdom. And I, I look forward to the next generation that learns that stuff from us. Yeah. And takes it and does what they're going to do with it. Uh, Matt, thanks a lot, man. We appreciate it. Well, anytime. You guys rock. It's an absolute pleasure to see you. I'm so glad to see what you're doing. And our memories are great. And our futures are going to be better. And tell Jacques hello. And salamaste. That was Matthew Browning, maker of We Charcuterie. He's a founding member of the Fairfield Farmer's Market. You'll find him there on Saturdays. And on Sundays, look for We Charcuterie at the Greenwich Farmer's Market. More than two dozen grocery stores, gourmet shops, and farms across the state carry We Charcuterie. And it's available online. We'll have a link on our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin, Katie Tolarski, Meg Dalton, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Our intern is Melody Rivera. Donut lovers, mark your calendars. Join us Thursday, March 30th at 2 p.m. for a live listener call-in show celebrating one of my favorites, donuts. Who's making the best donuts in the state? Share your favorites with us. 
The chefs behind Rise Donuts and Wilton are with us for the hour, and we want to hear from you too. To keep up with the latest on Season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. Or follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch past episodes of Seasoned wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll see you on the 30th.